It's uh, great to be together this morning, isn't it? And um, we're going to look at the Bible now. So uh, we're in the midst of a series in the book of 1 Peter, uh, which is a a letter to some churches in what would be modern-day Turkey uh, in the New Testament. So if you're new to your Bible, that's everything from Jesus onwards. And um, uh, Peter's been having a look, the, the writer of this letter, Peter, having a look so far Um, at who we are um, individually as Christians, who we are corporately together, and how we are to act in light of um, our identity. And um, where he's at in the second half of the letter, we are moving through, making good progress now. We're past halfway. What what he's doing here is, is essentially talking about how we act as Christians under the heading of chapter 2, verse 12, which I'm just going to read out for you. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. So read anyone who's not a Christian. Uh, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And what he's doing here at this point is that he is using the example of Jesus Christ to talk about the fact that when we ourselves have a character that is willing to give ourselves up for others or endure unjust situations. That is a witness to the work of God in our lives. What he's saying is that who we are on the inside dictates how we are on the outside. So let me read the passage that um, that we've arrived at this morning. So it's chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Again, it will come up on the screens. And in my Bible, it's entitled, Wives and Husbands. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the words, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, with a passage like that, this is a classic example of why we go through the Bible verse by verse chapter by chapter, section by section, because yes, sure, we can see it in the flow that it's written, but it means you do not avoid the hard bits, yeah? (laughs) Suddenly seeing that, I am a fan of thematic preaching where you just pick a topic and go where you like in the Bible. This is why we go through it verse by verse, so that we don't avoid even the bits that society doesn't like. And I suppose it's, it's worth just saying that I, I'm going to deal with some of those um, as, as we go through this. But if the views of society clash with the scripture, I want to say right from the outset that it is the former that needs to bow to the latter and not the other way around. Because if this book, the Bible, is God's authoritative words to us, 
And if it does us good, as we believe, then the question has to be, what does the Bible say, regardless of the consequences? And actually, if, if sitting here this morning, your conviction is that this book isn't God's word to us, then that's actually a different discussion. And it's one that we'd love to have with you afterwards. And please uh, come and find us after the meeting. But the starting point has to be whether we are willing to submit ourselves to this book. And as I'm sure you experience, that is because when you read verses like verse 1, wives be subject to your own husbands, or, or verse 5, this is how the holy women used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands, it can instantly lead to a defensive or a stern or a what on earth is going on there kind of reaction, can't it? I suspect as I was reading it, some of you were thinking, good luck with that one, JP. Come on then. <laughs> and others will be thinking, I don't like that at all. What is that saying? How am I meant to, to deal with that? Now, as part of my preparation for this message, I got together a, a group of women to um, talk through this passage. Uh, one reason being because uh, it talks a lot to wives here, and I am a bloke, um, even if my voice on the phone does sometimes seem to get confused for a woman, which is mildly embarrassing, but, you know, got to be honest. And um, actually, in, in that discussion group, which was ever so helpful, the, the same reaction was identified. That actually, initially, as you, you look at that passage, it can have this kind of clashing reaction with your spirit of, well, what, what's all that about? And that actually, that reaction can remain unless we plow into the truth of this passage and what it's saying, believing that God wants the best for us. As Claudia read out earlier in the worship time, we're to taste and see that God is good. And so actually, as we, we plow into these things, we're to do so knowing that he wants the best for us, that he is the creator of life. He has set it all up. He knows how everything works. And in this great mission to spread his name amongst the nations that he's called us to do, he does it so that we'll become more like him. He's given us things to do. He set life up as he has so that we become more like him. And so actually, when you see any kind of ethical passage like this in the Bible, you know, a, a sort of be like this, do this, your starting point has to be Jesus. We have to ask, how is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ has taken our sin and our mistakes on himself and given us his perfect right standing before God so that we are blameless before him forever, how is that the power to do these things that it's saying. And to illustrate it, I want to take you back 17 years to 15-year-old JP. Now, 15-year-old JP is in his GCSE history class. He is a very spotty teenager. He is wearing copious amounts of hair gel, combed forward, almost like white man's cornrows, you know, that kind of style. And he's a little bit of a teacher's pet, <laughs> let's be honest. And in my GCSE history class, I used to get lectured by a guy called Dr. Dunlop. And Dr. Dunlop was the kindest teacher ever. He seemed to know everything there was to know about history. And he gave us these copious notes that he would lecture us through and then stand there and, and, and talk us through them. And when it came around to exam season, he would be very, very specific about how we were to approach the exam. 
He would have talked to the exam board to try and glean what topics might come up. He would bring out all the past papers and do some crazy formula to try and establish what topics weren't going to come up, so you didn't need to revise them. He'd tell you how to answer the questions. He'd give you the examples. He'd tell us specifically how to do it. And what I found as I began my revision for these exams was that his notes were actually set up in exactly the same way. He both told me how to do it and then modeled it for me in the notes that he had given me. The topics that wouldn't come up, there was less in them. The topics that may well, he'd gone right in and he'd structured them in the exact way that you would do your exam answer. You see, when the person asking you to do something not only explains what to do, but models it themselves for you, it's far easier to do, isn't it? And how much more Jesus, who is not just our example, but our substitute, who takes his life, his perfect record, his power, and swaps them with us for our mistakes, our inability to live as we would want to do, our powerlessness, he models it, and then he gives it to us. He gives us the power to live this way. And as Jesus gave himself up, so now he calls us to do exactly the same. And as one of the women in, in the discussion group that we had said, our aim as Christians is actually to put ourselves at the very bottom of the pile. See, this is a passage about character. This is a passage about character that stands out, about people who are willing to live differently because of who their saviour is. This is a passage about people who know that the world is watching on, that the world needs the witness of a church living just like Jesus, that the world needs the witness of a people whose lives have been changed and who live radically differently for the sake of the greater kingdom they are living for. This is a passage for people know, who know that it all starts with character. Now, the immediate context, as you'll have seen, is, is the context of marriage. And um, so it's worth saying that uh, the things this passage is talking about, it's not talking about men and women generally. It's not talking about roles within church or anything like that. And um, it's also just to say that um, if you're single, this isn't something that you miss out on here, because in talking about character that is willing to sacrifice ourself um, for the sake of the message that it sends, the Bible is very clear um, that single people have more opportunity in terms of availability uh, to give themselves to God in service of him. And that actually the whole point of us serving God is that our characters become more like him. So when we're talking about character, this is exactly your route too. But within marriage, God's design is that husbands and wives will exhibit this kind of self-giving character in slightly different ways. And that is so that they can reflect together the loving relationship between Christ and his church. Now, for those of you that don't know me, I am married. I'm married to the lovely Emma. And um, we were married in this room, actually. And it was possibly the wettest wedding that has ever happened at Grace Church in its history. 
And uh, when, you are, uh, when it's so wet outside and you're wondering if you're about to cancel your photos or not, and then the next lyric you're singing is, in the sun or rain, I will celebrate that you are good, you have to raise a smile. But, um, but in, in our marriage, my, my role as husband, as, as the Bible would define it, is to love Emma as Christ loves the church. To die to myself for the sake of her. To lead her in the calling that God has given us as a family. To take ultimate responsibility for our relationship. To provide for her. To protect her. And I've called this servant leadership because my leading of us should be utterly servant-hearted. And actually, if that is lacking in some way, or selfish, or demanding on my part, then I have got that wrong. That is a wrong approach. And sometimes I do get that wrong. And in chatting these things over with Emma, I asked for examples of times when I get that wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know what's coming. I was hoping there might be a pause. I was hoping there might be a kind of, oh, nothing comes to mind immediately. <laughs> Everything she said was legitimate. And that's because these things are hard. It's hard for a husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church because he is such a perfect example. And yet, he now gives us the power to do it. Emma's role, as the Bible would define it, is to be like the church is to Christ. So to love me by supporting me, by fully playing her part, by deciding to be led by me. And that doesn't mean for a moment that she just says yes all the time. It doesn't mean that she doesn't take the lead in any area. In fact, she takes lots of initiative. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree. We do. And she challenges me, and I get all defensive about it. And she certainly doesn't call me Lord. <laughs> uh, verse 6. You know, we've got to explain that one. That, is that was just a cultural term for husbands. Don't be put off by that. I've called this loving submission. Because in her deciding, and it is her decision, hers to give, in her deciding to give herself in submission to my leadership, that's, yeah, on the basis of her love for me, but more so, and more importantly, on the basis of her love for God and of his words in passages like these. You see, the point is this, that in this great display, this great mirroring of this relationship between Christ and the church that marriage is, these two roles of servant leadership and loving submission are incomplete without each other. We, we can get very individually, individual about this, can't we? And we can be thinking, you know, Christ and the church, well, you know, I'd, I'd much rather be Christ than the church, so that, that seems unfair. But this is a team thing. The value is in the whole picture that is created, not the individual parts. You see, it, it's pointless playing Romeo if there's no Juliet. That's, that's the point. The point is the whole play. That's the idea. And of course, the truth is that Jesus plays both roles. He is the servant leader who gives himself up for the sake of his people. 
and he is the one who lovingly submits to the Father. And so here, Peter is not asking wives or husbands to do anything that Jesus has not already done for them and now empowered them to do. Now, how that works will look different in different marriages, in different cultures with different personalities and different giftings. And we've not really got time to to go into that in any further detail, other than to say that this is something that if you are married, you must work out with your spouse. This will be a continuing journey. There will always be room for improvement. There will always be things to commend. But with that in mind, here's some questions and some encouragements for you to be thinking about. And and wives, I want to begin with you just because you're first in the text. And I want to begin by just gently and humbly asking you the question that comes straight from this text. Are you exhibiting the loving submission to your husbands that this text talks about? Because it says that the character of a wife that does this is a precious thing in God's sight. It calls it imperishable beauty. See, this is the witness to the world of a self-giving Jesus. That's what Peter's talking about. And we are so blessed in this church to have some wonderful examples, some wonderful godly examples of wives doing this. And yet, in the the discussion group that we had, there was just the honest and real recognition that this feels so countercultural, doesn't it? It's an incredible challenge because the text seems to simply be putting it down to the question of will you follow Jesus? There was a a recognition as, as the women talked about how easy it is for modern marriage to become negative or undermining or competitive. So I want to ask, are you the champion of your husband? Does he feel respected by you? In your marriage, are you echoing the Jesus who willingly gave up his rights for the privilege of calling you his daughter? Is your focus, as verse 4 would put it, the hidden or inner person of your heart rather than merely your external appearance. Now, husbands, we're not getting off lightly here either, so uh, maybe you can see around the room different blokes starting to tense up, but let's let's see what this this passage says to us. Well, the first thing is that you absolutely need to create the easiest possible context for your wife to do this. Verse 7, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Now, don't worry, ladies, that is not as flimsy as it first sounds. An understanding way is talking about a personal knowledge of you, not an analytical knowledge. Now, blokes love to know things, don't they? They love to know things and love to explain things. So it could be, I live with my wife in an understanding way because I know how she would react in this situation, and I can tell you exactly why that would be. That is not what this passage is talking about. This is talking about a personal, intimate insight that leads to loving and considerate action. What is your wife enjoying right now? What is she concerned with right now? 
Am I taking time to listen to her? How can I serve her? How can I surprise her? What can I do that I don't want to do? What do I do that she would rather I did not? <laughs> Such as snoozing your alarm five times in the morning, just to let you in on our married life. <laughs> it says that we are to show honor to our wives. That is literally show preciousness. So I want to ask you, husbands, how are you showing preciousness to your wife? That is preciousness above your career, above your hobbies, above even your children. How are you showing preciousness to her? Because it's so easy in our culture to get into demeaning her. It is easy to stay away from the chaos or the difficulties of home under the ruse of working late. It's easy just to arrange to see your mates at the pub. But to lead like Christ leads is to give up everything for her. And I am not for a moment saying that there is not value in working hard or in blokes doing things together or in time with your children. There absolutely is, and these things must happen. But after God, your wife is your first priority. Does she feel that way? Does she feel that way? Because if you're called to follow her in your leadership of the family, then the more she feels loved and treasured and precious, the easier it is for her to lovingly submit to you. That is why we can comprehend that submitting to God is a good idea, because we feel treasured by him. Now, I better knock out the next phrase, because this is the elephant in the room, isn't it? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What on earth is that about? Someone said I'd get stoned when I, uh, when I read this out. Well, it is not in any way implying a weakness in women emotionally or spiritually or mentally or in terms of capability. It's just not. It's simply implying two things. And that is, the, number one, that the average man is physically stronger than the average woman, and that's not the case with every man to woman, it's not the case in every marriage, and Emma's thought it'd be really funny if we had an arm wrestle at this point, <laughs> just to you know, work this out for you. But it's, it's generally true, isn't it? But the second thing is that in this culture, where women really did not have a lot of value at all, where they were abused, to be honest, not really treasured, where the wife was just expected to, to take on the religion of her husband's, women generally were just more vulnerable. So you can read this phrase, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the more vulnerable of the two of you. It was just reflecting the societal reality. But Peter's point here to husbands is actually that your wives are heirs with you, are joint heirs with you of the grace of life heirs with you of the adventure of following Jesus, joint heirs with you of the blessings of God on your family, heirs with you of all God's goodness to you, and you must treat your wives as so. So that your prayers may not be hindered. I mean, that's frightening, isn't it? That God cares so clearly about your wife that even your prayers may be hindered if you don't take your responsibility seriously. 
Now, as, as I'm saying these things, there will be all sorts of questions that are arising in your minds. I understand that. But perhaps one of the most common ones might well be, and this is a justifiable question, but my spouse doesn't make it easy for me to do these things. Maybe you're a wife saying, my husband is domineering. It doesn't feel a blessing to submit to him. Maybe you're a husband that, that's saying, I, I feel like I give my wife everything, and she doesn't give anything back. It's a legitimate question. Let's just recognize that. It's a legitimate, painful question. It's actually the basis of the question. Actually, the basis of that question is the very same as the example that Peter is using here in verses 1 and 2 about a husband who doesn't fulfill his role in the marriage because he's not actually a believer in Jesus. Wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the words, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, whether that's your spouse or not, the question is, what are you to do if your spouse is not fulfilling their role as the Bible has defined it, as it should be, Christian or not? You could actually widen that to include how are we to act in any unjust situation? And I want to just recognize that there, there will be those here who, whatever your journey up to this point, are married to people who wouldn't say that they love Jesus. And that could range from an outright objection to your faith to a kind of indifference and a sort of seeing it as, as your thing. And I don't know what that's like. But I imagine for some of you that it's a daily pain. That it's a, a stinging of your heart's longing for your spouse to know the joy that you have in Jesus. And there will be some of you who are fervently praying for your spouse to know the beauty that it is to know Jesus. And there'll be some of you who may well feel like you've just given up, just given up hope. And I want to say to you this morning that the grace of God is sufficient for you. And that his power is made perfect in the weakness that you feel. And because of the kindness of God to speak to us in all sorts of situations, what comes out of this text is his word to you. To encourage you not to compromise on your faith. Not to compromise on what it means to follow Jesus. Not to compromise on what it means to be part of a church. Peter's saying, don't throw away the freedom that Christ has given you. But rather, use your freedom to be like Jesus. Use your freedom to fulfill the role that God has given you in marriage. Of either servant leadership or loving submission. And trust God to sort out the social ramifications. See, this would have been a huge deal in this culture. I mentioned earlier that the wife would have just been expected to take on the religion of her husband. This is a huge deal. And yet Peter puts it in verse six, right at the end, do good and don't fear anything that is frightening. The, the NIV's got a, a more helpful translation of that. Don't give way to fear. 
There would have been husbands trying to intimidate their wives out of their conviction that Jesus is Lord of all the earth. And Peter is saying that you're to continue to play your role unless, for example, submission to your husband would cause you to sin, in which case you're to lovingly refuse, or if it puts you in physical danger, in which case you are to get help immediately. Immediately. And that will be difficult, living that way. That may entail enduring some of the hardships that we spoke about last week and that are covered in the verses preceding this passage. You must have people around you, people who can pray for you, people who can live out Christian community with you. You must beware of the vulnerable position that is. I want to encourage you to trust God to work out his purposes in you and in those around you. Let me finish with this. Now, what I've described today is hard. It's hard to recognize that we need help to live as Jesus did. We need help even to recognize that we need help to. It's hard to give up your own rights and freedoms and to give this, this servant leadership or this loving submission as a gift to your spouse. It is tough. And in all the questions that have come up as I've been speaking, we want to give you an opportunity to ask those questions. So what I have asked is uh, two married couples from this meeting, once we finish in a few moments' time, to head over to the Fan Out More area over there, the red banner, and just to be available for you to go and ask your questions. And it might be, a, I didn't really get what JP was saying at this point. Can you just help me with that? Or it might be, how does this actually work out in your life? Give me more specific examples. Whatever your questions are, please take that opportunity. But let's remember that there is one who has gone ahead of us in these things. There is one who was subject to the Father. There is one who won us by his conduct. There is one whose focus was not purely on external beauty, but adorned himself with the imperishable beauty of gentleness and meekness and an emptying of himself for us. It was precious and acceptable in God's sight. There is one who did good and who did not fear intimidation. One who loves us personally and insightfully. One who honors us, though we were weak and vulnerable and yet who made us co-heirs of the grace of life. One whose prayers are never hindered as he intercedes before the Father constantly on our behalf. Folks, the only way that we can do these things that the passage is talking about is by throwing ourselves at the feet of Jesus. By asking for mercy by asking to be empowered by his spirit, and by asking for a change in our character to become more like him. And as we do so, he reminds us that he has already done all of these things in his life and death and resurrection, and that he now exchanges places with us. Our inability to do them 
through our sinful hearts is swapped for his completed work, his new empowering, and his presence with us. Because you can hear this message as a, you need to go away and do X, Y, and Z, and go away and try it, and I promise you, you will fail. You can't do it of your own strength. Or you can come to him right now and say, I need you, Jesus. I need your power. I need your spirit. Because I want my character to be a witness to the world. Let's have the band up.